This is Dennis Ramundi. I'm here with my co-host, Phil Goldberg. Our podcast and YouTube channel. Some will be listening to us. Some will be listening and seeing us. I hope that's a good thing. Uh, Spirit Matters. You find us at spiritmatterstalk.com. Please, whether you're listening or uh, or watching, uh, subscribe. If you heard that noise, that's uh, thunder in the background. Phil's in Los Angeles. I'm in Iowa, where it's a little less stable. And uh, and David is in uh, New York City. I'm No, actually, he's out in the Hamptons right now, I should say. And uh, for those listening in or watching that have uh, contributed to help us keep, on the, keep us on the air, thank you. And those that haven't, if you want to, go ahead. And Phil and I are committed to remaining free and available to everyone. Uh, very special guest today, David Nick Dern. What a background. He's a writer, entrepreneur, four-time Emmy Award winner and uh, two-time Grammy-nominated musician. Uh, he's worked with uh, some of the biggest and the best, and he's also a Buddhist teacher. And since our, our, uh, our uh, theme is uh, contemporary spirituality, we, he enters uh, as a Buddhist teacher, but we're, I'm curious about all aspects of his life, and certainly uh, they're all based on spirituality. So David, thank you so very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Well, thank you both for having me. It's, uh, I'm already feeling quite at home with the two of you. Energetically, <laughs> very, very hope, comfortable feeling, yeah. We hope that will be a consistent feeling for the next uh, period of time. We want to talk about your uh, new book, provocatively titled Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck, something most of our listeners uh, can relate to, uh, or at least one of those three, if not all three. But before we uh, get to that, um, can you give us the brief version of your own uh, spiritual journey, uh, how you came to Buddhist practice, how you... Uh, came to the work you do and presumably uh, integrating creative work with making a buck. (laughs) Well, I like to say creativity, spirituality, and making a buck. Pick two. (laughs) 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 So, of course, um, the title's meant to be playful, but also a little provocative towards... um, the theme that I've sort of migrated towards over many decades of doing these kinds of um, this kind of work is the integration of elements of life into one sort of woven braid of uh, you know unique expression of who each person is and how they want to manifest in the world. So for me, that's meant you know I started studying Buddhism in 1970, um, which is um, more than half a century ago. For those of you who we're can't do very the well, we, we know it well. <laughs> <laughs> we know that half a century intimately. Yeah, and it was the better half of the century. No, I don't know whether it was or not, but um, so it's. Uh, I recently was talking to a friend of mine, and I said, I don't know what I would be or how I'd be if I hadn't gotten involved with Buddhism fifty years ago. It's just such an integrated part of of what I, who I am and what I'm. Been, I wonder if I'd be better off or worse off, I thought. Like, that would be interesting if I could just see in a parallel universe, you know. But the fact is, it's really molecularly, granularly engraved into my being, the, the perspective. And I met a Buddhist teacher named Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche in 1970, when I was going to the Berkeley College of Music uh, at that time. 
And I was also uh, studying yoga at a yoga center there. So there were a lot of threads there. And he came, he had just come to the United States and just came there and gave a workshop. And ironically, the workshop was called Work, Sex and Money, which is actually, you can buy that book today by Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche. Um, and his whole perspective right then and there was that these, these aspects of life should be integrated and not, not, uh, not separated. So I, I was kind of taken aback a little bit when I met him. He came in a business suit, a Western business suit. He wasn't wearing robes. And I, I was kind of looking more like for where's my Swami, you know? And uh, he, he uh, was very, very um, steady and, and very matter of fact in a way, but kind of um, special and unique at the same time. So I found that to be an interesting combo. I have to say yeah. uh, in 1970, I was taking private flute lessons at Berkeley School of Music with a guy named Joe Viola, who I, who I later found out was kind of legendary for, for teaching uh, horn players. Wow. I, didn't, I, I, I wanted to be Paul Horn, but it didn't work out. <laughs> well, what happened to your flute? Where's your flute? It's somewhere in my garage or uh -huh. somewhere. Yeah, that's, well, there you go, creativity, spirituality. Well, I was meant to write. Uh. When you when you said right, you made piano hands. Did you? That, yes, there, there's a keyboard in front of me. Okay, so you are. Is, I didn't know about Phil's flute playing, so I'll have to follow up on that. Okay. Uh, yeah. It, it's. Uh, I, I'm curious. Uh, I, I think one of your parents was a musician, uh, correct? Well, I had the following. That was my spiritual lineage, but my family lineage was my dad was a, a child psychiatrist. Okay. So the thing I used to get from my friends is, so what happened to you? You know, that was, that was a joke <laughs> that we would make. And then um, my mom was a sort of famous Broadway producer. She right. was the first first woman to win a Tony Award Wow! Uh, for producing on Broadway. So she was a tremendous influence. And then my uncle, who was her brother, was a famous musician too, Herb Joseph. So the first professional job I had at, out in the real world after graduating from Columbia College was in the pit of a show called Jimmy Shine which my mother produced. Uncle Irv was the keyboard player and music director. I was the guitar player. Dustin Hoffman was the star. John Sebastian wrote the music. And that's me right out of college. And um, kind of that's, it was, uh, a, you know, nepotism incorporated, you know. All right, so here, I, I'm curious. I'm curious. So would you say your first love or your first passion was music, was production? Uh, and then uh, and then when spirituality entered, uh, did it, knock you off your track a little bit or did you immediately see that uh you know spirituality and, and and buddhist teaching can actually help me with all of this what went on uh, was there a whirlwind of of thinking yeah. at that time about how you fit into everything or how everything fit in with you yeah how, how everything fits into you is probably a better question yeah <laughs> you know so um and that's a great question in a way it's the essence of why i wrote that book uh, 50 years later, because there was some element of competition for my time and energy and attention, uh, because I studied Buddhism fairly seriously. So uh, at one point, like at the, really kind of the peak of my music career, I, I, I wrote a song called Midnight at the Oasis, and I was scoring pictures in Hollywood and, um, you know, playing with a lot of very well-known. Uh, but by the way, I think that, I mean, that won a major, that was a big, big song. I, I, uh, Marie Meldar, right? And, and yeah. uh, Fabulous song. Uh, uh, I, I think it was a number one hit and uh, uh, won awards. Uh, I mean, 
Wow, that's quite and, an accomplishment. And I have to say, I met Maria Meldauer when uh, I was living in Boston before Midnight at the Oasis. When, oh, wow. When that's she was amazing. in a uh, spiritual community. Oh, you're in, going uh, way back Ford now. the Hill section of Boston. So, sure, anyway. yeah. Yeah, there's so many. When we track back our roots to that time, and of course, I work a lot with younger people who are, it's interesting what people resonate with at that time. So I was having, I had a hit record on the radio. I was in a band with Jerry Garcia, a bluegrass band, and I was going back and forth and seeing Trungpa Rinpoche and studying Buddhism. So that was a pretty colorful time in a lot of ways. For sure. And, and, and it's, it's hard to translate it for people now. It's hard, you know. But, but again, I want to get back to, yeah. so what was, at that time, did you see spirituality as the basis of everything else? Or was it more that your passion, where were your passions uh, then? Well, you know, this is a question that goes forward all right to this day and why I'm doing the work I'm doing. Because the classical Buddhist, the most classical Buddhist um, approach is to renounce samsara, leave the world. Look what Buddha did. He, had a, mm-hmm. he was a family guy. He, went, he slipped out the back, Jack, and went off and studied with the yogis and went on and got enlightened. And he never had a secular life again after that. Uh, so in classical Buddhist terms, you renounce the world. You would, you would uh, give it up. And then there's another parallel tradition, which Trungpa Rinpoche really represented, which was total engagement in the world and the creative and the business aspects of life and the social and the um, societal aspects. So those are really two strands. And uh, in a way, for me, at a certain point, I understand the question you're asking. There was a a competition of time and energy uh, uh, through a considerable amount of my life because you cannot be in two places at once. Right. I tried my best and I would go back and forth, but you know, there was some feeling of like, um, I didn't want to become a renunciate, you know, like Pema Chodron also studied with Trungpa Rinpoche. Mm-hmm. She became a renunciate, she's a nun. You know, I didn't want to follow that path. He was, uh, he was exp- uh, pre- presenting a path which was for a householder person like myself, but it, re- it required serious study. So for example, right then in 1976, I went to a three month seminary and I had to turn down a big film score to go. So there was this feeling of like, you know, going back and forth between these two worlds. And it's only more recently that I find them to be coming together. And I want to present a path for people who want to integrate right from the start. I That's think what... a lot of our listeners, including um, Dennis and me, relate very strongly mm, to right. that, that history. But I want to uh, uh, ask you a, what might be a controversial question because because Trungpa was a controversial guy. And, and a lot of uh, the controversy around him came after he was gone. Um, and I wondered what you had to say about that and uh, some of the stuff that went on and, and was uh, called crazy wisdom and all that, or whether you were just removed from it entirely. Uh, removed from what? Sorry. Uh, any uh, controversial or dramatic dramas that were going on in, in, in the 70s around him. Ah, okay. I think I understand the drift of the question. So, no, I wouldn't say I was removed from anything because the, um, the way that he lived and taught was just completely out in the open. So there was no sense of like, oh, this is backroom stuff that's going on. Like... Um, you know, the, the, the Swami who, who, who started Kripalu, who was claiming to be celibate. And then, you know, they find out that he's actually playing around with the students. So 
this this atmosphere in the 70s was completely wide open um it was outrageous but it was it, it was um not any more outrageous than other air arenas that i was experiencing at that time in which a mm -hmm. lot of experimentation was going on so if if we put it in kind of contemporary terms i would say he was openly polyamorous um he he consumed very massive qualities of sake in particular um he had um he was also a classically trained buddhist teacher he was not a renegade in the sense that people think oh he was just experimenting a lot of he had a three-month ceremony where he really trained people very deeply in traditional buddhist studies um so my experience of him might be different than somebody else's that's that's what i would say um uh, I, and i i don't want to um try to to you know address somebody else's experience but my experience was that he was provocative and he was um mm -hmm. uh, you know uh, creative but i dug it you know i i, I was part of mm -hmm. uh, an atmosphere in which that all felt um appropriate and and um, in fact you know it 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 it, it was uh, part of our of our spiritual training to um not just put everything into neat little packages so I didn't have any problem with it, with that aspect myself, but it wasn't hidden from me either. And I never saw him hurt anybody in any way. Mm -hmm. I just want to go on the record as saying, <clears throat> I never, even at any state of that. And to this day, thousands of his older students still are completely, um, you know, dedicated to preserving the, the teachings that he presented. Mm -hmm. David, I'm curious, uh, you, 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 you got involved with Buddhism. I don't know at what point you considered yourself a Buddhist, whatever. In 1970, I started meditation TM back in 70. And at that time, you know, there were very few people in mainstream society that were uh, practicing meditation. There were, yeah. I, I don't know that I knew any Buddhists. Uh, obviously, over the course of time, uh, the last five decades, uh, meditation Buddhism has become uh, more and more uh, uh, incorporated into the culture. I mean, Phil wrote the book, American Veda, about how that influence came what did you notice uh, uh, in, in terms of at what, when and why do you think Buddhism really sort of took off in the U.S., where you uh -huh. hear more and more people becoming Buddhist? And are, was it the type of Buddhism that uh, you were involved with? Yeah, so those are all good questions. And I think some of us saw this coming, you, you could say, that there was going to be an increase in the popularity of some aspects of the this type of training and one of the interesting things is it blends very well with psychology you know the way we were taught was very psychological in a way um as opposed to a kind of religious -y kind of vibration to mm -hmm. it and um the um onset of unpacking the buddhist teachings and taking a piece off which is called mindfulness was right. kind of inevitable because it, it, it's something that fell off the Buddhist bus and everybody opened it up and went, this really works here and now. And uh, many people think that's e the e synonymous with Buddhism mindfulness, but it's actually just a very small piece of the path. Um, but it's a foundational piece. And I feel it's a piece that can be secularized quite easily. And it's a good thing that mil millions of people want to learn how to practice mindfulness. But mm -hmm. it's not, it doesn't mean that they want to go beyond that to study the rest of it, which could lead to a process of discovery, transformation, emotional opening, you know, uh, development of compassion, skillful means. Nobody's, so I, I don't know if the culture has gotten to the edge of that. And I don't know if they'll pull back 
uh, at a certain point and go, okay, that fad's over. <laughs> it could happen. Yeah. You know, it's a parallel with uh, uh, yoga and other sort of Hindu based. Right. Forms of yeah. Um, in this integration of work and, uh, you know, making a buck and spirituality, um, in my experience, uh, a lot of people, especially creative people and especially uh, people who are serious about their spiritual lives, um, want to follow the do what you love and it will pay off model. Mm. Uh, and many find that you can do what you love and it doesn't necessarily mean that people will pay for it. How in your book and in your work with other people do you reconcile that those possibilities of following your uh, the drive to do something you love and the reality of, of a marketplace? Yeah, well, the whole book is about that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'll give you just a simple formula that, that I use the formula of joining heaven and earth, which is an Asian and a European paradigm for taking your vision. You know, you have a vision of something and then you bring it down to connect it with the practicality of executing or manifesting that vision. So that's the kind of framework. Once that vision is there, like let's say being a flute player or whatever you have, then there's a sort of sense of an offering coming out of that, which is you want to offer that back to the world. And then there's a split in the road. I want to offer it as just something for love and for, as you said, doing what you love. The other is I want to do this for my livelihood. And in the book, I say, if you want to do it for love, um, then we're going to just go to the creativity chapter because there's a whole process there. If you're going to do it for your offering and for livelihood, then there's a whole middle section on how to do business, <laughs> which nobody wants to talk about. And usually in the spiritual world, they go like, yes. this is just, you know, that's why I put a dollar bill on the cover of the, <laughs> on the book. You know, religious people for decades, millennia have been saying money's kind of a dirty thing, right. uh, you know, root of all evil. And I don't believe it is. I believe it's just a form of exchange. But if you want to take your flute, practice and offering and now you want to be you know alive you want to define your livelihood that way there's a lot of principles that you have to learn that are in addition to learning how to play the flute right and and they have they have more to do with skill than love at that point so oh, david um yeah. i wanted to does that make book. sense does that make yeah. sense oh absolutely well yes of course okay. i relate to that in my own life right. and i'm sure yeah. a lot of listeners do but there is in many cases a resistance to the skill and the application part of it, or the what I found in myself to be uh, personal about it years ago, trying to reconcile wanting to be a, a writer with making a living as a writer, I, I finally realized I not only, I used to say I'm not good at marketing or self-promotion. The truth was I had contempt for it and I had yes. to get over that. Sure. Right. Did you, do you find that? You know, I kind of like business and I'll tell you why. And it's the reason why all these, why I'm building a company called Dharma Moon right now. And it's to integrate these three things. And I deliberately chose to have it be not a uh, not-for-profit company. In other words, 
we're entering the arena of business, but trying to do right livelihood kind of business. I feel business puts people into a, a, a certain relationship to reality that matures and ripens them in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And, and they have to kind of, um, there's no whining. In, you know what I mean? You can't, artists can whine, but business people shouldn't whine. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I guess I feel like I enjoy that part of the adventure also. And then there's the pure creativity part, which has um, got its whole own set of, uh, you know, I've got a whole bunch of chapters on that, which almost have nothing to do with the rest of the book in a certain way. Right. The first chapter says, just disregard everything that you read in this book. And David, uh, yeah, I think it's uh, chapter 15 in your book, Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck. Where you, uh, there's a principle that comes out, and it's, you just devote a, f- a few pages to it. But I, I find, find it to be very profound. People want to be appreciated, appreciate them. I sort of uh, incorporated that many years ago, mm. reading something from Dale Carnegie. Uh, mm. If you want people to like you, like them. It was very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious, is that a Buddhist principle? Where did that come from? And, and um, how have you incorporated that into your life? Yeah. Well, of course, sometimes you move into the business world and people are going to overlay a lot of their neurotic patterns from their mm-hmm. families into the business world. Mm-hmm. It's just what happens. So there's a lot of abusive energy in the business world. Sometimes the boss can be abusive. The, um, as soon as somebody gets any power, they begin to kind of treat people badly. So I'm not saying give people an easy time and treat them dysfunctionally as if they were your kids either, but I'm saying when somebody does a good job, you can mention it. It would be good form. And, uh, and if you, it's not whether they like you or you like them. It's you're expressing appreciation for a job well done. And um, you know, they've spent their time and energy on it and they've done a good job. And if you say so, everybody's going to be a little bit happier, I think. Um, uh, Unless you're Buddy Rich. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that reference. You're old enough to remember that that was for you guys. That was that was a special one for you, the two of you. What I just read where Frank Sinatra had problems with Buddy Rich, but that's well, he, story. he was. I mean, just for the people out there, he was a famous band leader who was and uh, he made me rest Drummer. in peace. Yeah. yeah, but a band leader also. Yeah. And, and the joke in the music community is he just wasn't that he did not appreciate uh, his players and was kind of harsh on them. So, yeah. um, I, and, and I don't know if that's true or not, but that's just the kind of a yeah. the common common track i have read similar yeah yes um one of the questions i wrote down uh, in advance you've alluded to you've mentioned by name uh which is the the buddhist uh precept of right livelihood Mm -hmm. tell us about that and how it fits into the making of paradigm well you know the the seminal Buddhist teaching for everybody out there who, and, and many people who would know this is called the Four Noble Truths, right? And the first one is the truth of dukkha or suffering or some kind of discomfort, acknowledging some kind of fundamental underlying discomfort rather than trying to pad your way across over it. The second one is looking at the cause, look at the source. The third one is um, mitigating the source uh, and therefore um, mitigating the suffering. Um, and then the fourth one is the path to, to doing that. So that's called the Eightfold Noble Path. And it's basically about using the situation at hand in order to cultivate a, uh, 
balanced and ethical relationship to um, things like speech, how you can how you hold your body, what your outlook is, and also your relationship to livelihood. So it's not at odds with your spiritual practice. In other words, you don't go like it's not like you go to church on Sunday and say or it's Saturday and say a few barukas, you know, or whatever, and then Monday you're just like, you know, uh, you know, conning everybody, and you know, it, there's too much separation there. So the eightfold path is let's integrate the daily life with the with the Dharma outlook, and that's 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 really in a nutshell. And and explain what right livelihood connotes to you. Yeah. Well, and I think it might connote different things to different people, but it's a contemplation of like, uh, you know, it would be not lying, cheating, stealing, those kind of very, it's interesting how basically I haven't found a religion yet that advocates you should go do those things, you know? So I think it's common human wisdom. uh, If you want to treat people well, um, Mm -hmm. be fair, you know, um, recognize that every, that you do need to pay your rent, uh, you know, that you do have certain physical needs that are, that are not, uh, you know, uh, something that you can just gloss over. So you have a balanced perspective to livelihood, and it's mixed with an ethical approach. That's what I. That's what I think. Right, livelihood is mindful livelihood. David, do you have a spiritual practice or practices that you commit to doing every day? Yeah, I, I meditate, and um, mm-hmm. there, meditation is um, has var- varied forms because in the tradition I study, which is Tibetan Buddhism, there are many, many different forms of meditation. Um, so the basic premise is you're cultivating something, either mindfulness, mm-hmm. awareness, compassion, something like that. I do something like that every day. Yeah. One of the things that came to mind uh, when I started reading your book was something I heard many, many years ago uh, in the context of uh, the beat poets, which mm. is the expression a first thought, best thought. And then I noticed that Trungpa actually uh, said yeah. the same thing because you mentioned it in your book. Yeah. Um, at this first thought, best thought, I want you to explain what that means and then tell us what it means in the execution phase because. I always associated that expression with people like Allen Ginsberg. And then I had occasion to see an exhibit of all the drafts of the poem Howl Howl. and all the crossing out and all the changes and all all the execution that went in. Tell me about that. Well, so when you mention Allen, of course, this brings up a very, uh, I'm going to try to answer fairly expeditiously on two aspects of that. One is Alan was a member of our community. Yes. And the way that he met Trungpa Rinpoche is a classic great story of what we call tendril or auspicious coincidence. They both tried to hail the same cab in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> and they got in together. And that's how Alan started studying with Rinpoche. Alan, that seminary, that three-month program that I talked to, Alan was at the one I went to. So when Rinpoche got here, uh, he was mixing kind of his training with a lot of the contemporary forms. So like at, at Naropa uh, in, in Boulder, Colorado, they had the Beat Poet Society there and Alan was there and Gregory Corso and um, a, lot, a lot of the, the, the poets at the time. And they would have what I guess you would call a poetry slam was part of the hang there. And 
Trungpa Rinpoche was in there. He was a poet and his, the way he did poetry was kind of very much first thought, best thought. That's a phrase that he actually coined. Um, and it's, it's really going from a sort of space of open mind to something comes through and you just go along with that. So sometimes he would even do group poetry with his students that way. So you don't have time to linger or dwell particularly. Now that's different from impulsive. Uh, there has to be a certain amount of discipline there. So it's, um, it could already be your fifth or sixth thought if you're not, um, you know, doing it that, with that kind of freshness. And he would do that with Alan and with other poets there. At the same time, Ramdas was there, they're having debates. At the same time, there's a group of people who are basically like me, who are very much exploring a lot of things uh, at once. And um, so I guess my perception of it was Rinpoche was really trying to mix his, uh, what he, what was, where were the relevant points in terms of mixing with this society? And he naturally sort of landed with the, the, the hippies and the beatniks, you know, that would be a kind of, that's who were the early adopters, you know. And in, in the execution of ideas, yeah. this notion of first thought, best thought can, you know, be taken literally. Uh, and how does that tie into the concept of beginner's mind? Very well. You know, uh, beginner's mind is uncluttered by, you know, uh, going into sixth, eighth, tenth thought, you know, which is where we we kind of wake up in the middle of about the 11th thought. Like when you're meditating, you're going blah, 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 blah. And it's not like you caught the first thought. It's you're, you're already three minutes into a narrative that could go into a James Joyce novel for most people, right? So uh, beginner's mind is cutting through that and you know, sort of starting fresh. So beginner's mind has to have a certain kind of um, suddenness to it actually. It's very helpful for some, and in Zen, they introduce that sudden impact of something, you know, that either shouting or, or hitting or whatever, whatever form it takes for a Zen student to suddenly wake up. So we have a phrase that we use suddenly free from fixed mind because beginner's mind can't be discovered in the middle of a fixed mind. It's just, you can't find it. So there's some shift of attention, some shift of awareness, and then you have beginner's mind, which was underlying the whole situation. Then you have first thought, best thought. Good. Then you have, now let's go, let's elaborate, let's develop that further. Mm -hmm. Then you have, okay, now I created something, what am I gonna do with it? <laughs> am I taking it to the marketplace or not? Right. So that's, 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 how I, that's how I see it. We're trying to, you know, I, I mentioned this Dharma Moon um, uh, platform that we're building. It's to sort of bring some of those principles out into the world more and make them available to people who are either cultural creatives or entrepreneurs, sometimes people call it. You want to mix up, you want to mix your flute playing with your everyday life. You want to mix it with your livelihood, with your vision. I think people want integration now. That's, that's a big topic, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. David, I have a final question. I'll turn it over to Phil. And that is uh, somebody watching us now on uh, YouTube channel or, or listening in on a podcast. Uh, and uh, they, you arouse their interest. And I'm sure it happens with a lot of people you, that hear you speak. And they think, I'd like to venture into um, a more spiritual life. Uh, and of course, your book, Creativity, Spirituality, and, and Making a Buck, uh, is a great place to start. But then if somebody wants to go and really learn more about Buddhism, either become a Buddhist or learn about Buddhist teaching, 
What, what do you recommend to them? Well, my first recommendation at this point is that they go to dharmamoon.com. Dharmamoon. Dharmamoon. That's D H A R M A. Moon.com. Yep. Moon, M O O N.com. Because that's where we're collecting these programs. We have a mindfulness meditation teacher training program. That mm-hmm. would be a good place to start. For beginners, we have a Foundations of Mindfulness course. We have some weekend workshops that go into different aspects of these teachings. And we also have creative and cultural incubation, which is kind of people are just connecting uh, strongly via community. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the easiest way if you just go to that website and then everything, all the offerings are right there. We have some com- things coming up. I don't know when this is airing, but we have a teacher training program starting uh, you know, in, in early June. And we have programs coming off pretty much all the time. So if, if you go there, you'll see, you'll, you'll see what's being offered. But I would say between those two courses, that would be a place to start. Foundations of Mindfulness course or the, um, the, um, introdu- the um, introduction to um, Mindfulness in the Path of Meditation leading into the 100-hour teacher training. We'll get this up before June. Right. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. And, then, and then, you know, there's easy ways to, to communicate from there. But we're trying to build a complete platform based on the principles that, that we're talking about. So mm-hmm. if somebody's trying to figure out how to make a living too, or, or how to make a living being a, a meditation teacher, or how to integrate their creative work with uh, some kind of uh, practice, we, we're having those kind of conversations in a community forum. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. Well, I have one more question about... Uh, you guys would both fit in perfectly, by the way. <laughs> Great. You guys would both fit in perfectly. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Um, one more question about a classic Buddhist principle and how it's not only a Buddhist principle, it's a very yogic principle. And of course, there's a lot of overlap. Um, and that is uh, non-attachment. According <laughs> to your book, uh, Trungpa used to use the term disown. Um, now, people stumble over the concept of being unattached a lot. So how does it tie in with creativity and making a buck? May they bless you for asking that question, because I woke up this morning with that question in my mind. Ah. I was just talking to a friend. I said, look, to, to become a Buddha, you must be born in the human realm, according to the Wheel of Life teachings. So... That, that's my other book, Awakening from the Daydream, The Six Realms. Now you're a human being, which we are. Now you fall in love. You become um, drunk with love. You have children. You, you worry about them endlessly. How are they doing out there in, in this crazy world? You have friends. You have uh, your own mortality waxing and waning. How the hell are you ever going to get enlightened in that, from that in that <laughs> particular situation to get to a point where you can accept. And here's what I mean by enlightenment. You actually are at peace with impermanence. Mm-hmm. And they asked Karmapa 16, what is an enlightened person experience? He said impermanence. Mm-hmm. I thought that's really profound. So in other words, you, you, you understand the role of impermanence, but you have to also understand the role of passion, compassion, connection. And that's what I woke up this morning, my friend, Philip, that's what I woke up this morning wondering about. How is it possible to do both? And everybody I've talked to today, I've asked them the question you just asked me. Uh-huh. <laughs> and where are you now? Everybody's chewing on it, including me and you. 
<laughs> we're chewing on it. It's like, you know, yeah, well. yeah, right. You ask the dog what's inside the bone, you know, they have to chew it. And then you run the risk of, as Alan Watts one put it, of being attached to non-attachment. That's an easy one in a Buddhist perspective, nihilism. The other one is eternalism, where you're attached to attachment. Right. In the middle, where we find ourselves, I think the middle way people, it's it's a koan. It's 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 a, um, you know, it's meant to be something that you really have to chew through to get to get the marrow out of it. I don't think there's an easy answer. I certainly don't have one. Very good. Yeah. Right. Is any any final question? No, uh, but I you, you mentioned the other book, Awakening, uh, the day from the daydream. Yeah, uh, and uh, the book that is most recent. Want to make sure we promote that. This will all be posted up. Uh, wonderful. I'd love to have you back on because okay. as soon as we get off, I'll have a lot more questions. Yeah. And uh, yeah, fifty years of wisdom, and uh, and uh, what a career! Music, uh, business, uh, all round. A triple threat, as we say. <laughs> so, uh, thank you so much for Any, taking the time. Uh, final parting words for our listeners, David. Yeah. Uh, Use your inner gyroscope to get through this period that we're in right now. Uh, don't 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 try to navigate from the external reference points too much. Yeah. See if you can find some kind of mental and emotional stability that that is uh, more internal right now because uh, who, who, uh, it's a strange, a landmarkless scene that we're in right now. And also be very kind to yourself during this time. That's, yeah, by the that's, way, it's May May twenty twenty one. They, they, we, for those listening in the future or in our archives, this is being recorded in May of no, oh no April, 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 end of April, 2021. 2021. Yeah. Ah, I see. Cause they might be listening hundreds of years from now and go, right. I don't know. I don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> when was 1970? <laughs> well, yeah. And, and um, I'm working on a little autobiography called in one era and out the other. That's what it feels like, like it applies to music as well as spirituality. Yeah, but it's coming around again. A lot of things that we uh, think about are still present in the equation. So sure. um, I want to thank you guys both for having me on, on your show. It's, it's, it, it, it really felt, I, I said at the beginning, it feels, feels like home and, and um, it's a good feeling. So thank you. Great. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, David.